Hi, Siddharth. Thanks for joining us. How are you? Oh, fine. Thank you. Stephen, how are you? Wonderful. Thank you very much for asking. I'm um, very been looking at your work in a lot of detail recently. I'm very, very pleased to see it getting a lot of traction and a lot of eyes and ears on your work. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about your, your background and, and what you do before we get into the specifics. Yes, thank you. And thank you for having me this evening. Um, I have been traveling the world uh, for the last 22 years researching uh, modern day slavery and child labor uh, in dozens of countries around the world um, in numerous different sectors and industries uh, from commercial sexual exploitation to uh, forced labor and agriculture uh, in seafood uh, and a range of different construction um, different sectors. Um, my most recent work the last several years, which has culminated in my book, Cobalt Red, which came out last week, has been on cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Excellent. So um, maybe you can just explain a little bit about what, what brought you to Congo. Why did you end up there? Yeah, of course. Um, let's say six, seven years ago, um, I started hearing from colleagues in the field that, uh, oh, Siddharth, um, have you heard about cobalt mining in the Congo? It's in the batteries. The conditions are very uh, bleak um, under which people are mining. Uh, you know, maybe you should look into that. And um, it took me a little time to, to plan my first trip and to establish ground relationships so I could move into the mining areas uh, safely to conduct uh, undercover investigations and document testimonies. Uh, I took my first trip in 2018. And what I saw there... Um, uh, exceeded anything I could have imagined in terms of bleakness, degradation, exploitation of some of the poorest people in the world. Um, uh, uh, and so then I started going back again and again and again to try to bring this truth out into the world. Okay, Siddharth, I think we appear to have maybe have lost your video. Hopefully we can, we can work on getting that back, but we can, we can hear you loud and clear. So may, maybe you can just take a moment to explain to us what, what cobalt is exactly and what, what, where would you find it? What is it used for? Yeah, I, I can see myself on the screen and I see you. Um, oh, maybe uh, it's just my issue then. Maybe people in the chat can help me out here. Can, can we all see, see Siddharth? Okay, so it's just just me. I can't see your, your beautiful face anymore, unfortunately, but um, <laughs> we, will, we will work through it. Yeah, if you could just pick up that point and let us know uh, what cobalt is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you see, someone out there doesn't want us talking. Um, <laughs> so this is what you have to understand. Um, people like you, me, uh, the people watching this podcast, we cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Cobalt is used in every lithium ion rechargeable battery. Uh, uh, almost every lithium ion rechargeable battery manufactured in the world today. So every smartphone, every tablet, every laptop, every rechargeable gadget, and crucially, almost every electric vehicle requires cobalt in the battery. So you and I can't have this conversation without cobalt. We can't get through a day without cobalt. And as the world transitions from internal combustion engines to electric vehicles, cobalt is at the center uh, of this entire migration to the rechargeable economy. And about three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is mined in the Congo in utterly deplorable, degrading conditions that are akin to colonial slavery. Wow. So in terms of how um, how much of it is, is mined in Congo, is that 
is that uh, basically an outcome of geography? Is it just that it's in abundance in that part of the world? Well, this is the enormous curse of the Congo, that it is blessed with resources um, beyond measure, resources that uh, one century after another, the foreign powers have come to pillage and plunder uh, while enslaving the local population to uh, generate massive profits at the top of the chain. And it just so happens that the Congo holds more cobalt reserves than the rest of the planet combined. And those reserves are actually just in a small part of the Congo in the southeast southeastern corner of the country. So our entire rechargeable economy and the future EV world is resting squarely on the shoulders of the cobalt reserves in the Congo. And I assume this is being exported, is it primarily to China, where it's then assembled in these components and then shipped to the rest of the Western world? Yes, that's exactly right. So China... China cornered the global cobalt market before anyone else knew what was happening. And now uh, Western Europe and the U.S. are trying to play catch up. But China dominates mining production on the ground uh, in the Congo. They are also the chief uh, consumers, buyers of all the child labor mined and peasant mined uh, uh, and slave mined cobalt that's coming out of the Congo. It all merges into the same supply chain before it ever leaves the Congo. And then it is predominantly exported to mainland China for uh, commercial grade refining. Last year, China produced roughly 80% of the world's refined cobalt supply. So they, they dominate, they control the supply chain from toxic pit in the Congo all the way up to the battery level. And then those batteries are sold to the consumer facing tech and EV companies. Wow. So t tell me the size of these mines that you see. I mean, how many, how many people in there would you see working? What sort of age ranges are we talking about? And what, what are the conditions? So some of these mining concessions are as big as a city. The biggest one is about the size of London. And that's just a concession that a Chinese company owns that they have gouged and, and, and ripped apart, digging out copper, cobalt, nickel, and other battery metals. Uh, you go into some of these big industrial mines. And what your viewies, viewers really need to understand is there's a story told at the top of the chain that there are no artisanal miners working in industrial mines. The supply chains are distinctive and it's all a fiction. It's all a fiction. When you get on the ground and you go into industrial mines as I have, you see sometimes thousands, sometimes 10 or 15,000 human beings crammed inside giant uh, open pits, clanking and hammering against raw mountain of stone uh, to gather this cobalt ore and feed it up the chain to companies that are worth trillions. It's an utter hellscape, an utter hellscape, a scene you would imagine from centuries ago, the kind of old world servitude and abusive labor that you see in the Congo. And this, I mean, by artisanal, this is all manual by hand. Yes, this term artisanal kind of suggests some quaint kind of labor, but it's not that at all. It is a bleak, degrading, hard, brute labor Cobalt, incidentally, is toxic. It's toxic to touch. It's toxic to breathe. And so you have hundreds of thousands of some of the poorest people in the world, including tens of thousands of children, 
touching cobalt, breathing it in, day in and day out, young women with babies strapped to their backs, inhaling toxic cobalt dust day in and day out. Quite apart from the degrading labor abuse, there's just a massive public health catastrophe taking place in the Congo at the bottom of uh, our rechargeable economy supply chains. Every single person who lives there is being subjected to toxic exposure. I mean, in... in... In, in a sort of similar fashion, a lot of the big um, companies have, have moved away from the sort of sweatshop conditions. You know, they've been checks and balances put in place, or at least that would be that's what we've been told. Is, is there something similar that these big corporations are being told on the ground in Congo in terms of what the working conditions should be? It's all a fiction. Uh, and even in other industries, you know, there's there's these marketing teams at the top of the chain that proclaim that conditions are better. They're not so bad. And the assumption is who's going to get down there, find the truth and bring it to the world's attention. And that's particularly true of the Congo, because it is very hard to get there. And it is exceptionally different, difficult and dangerous to get into mining areas. The companies at the top of the chain, I believe, are all too aware of what the conditions are at the bottom. They make these proclamations that their supply chains are fully audited, that there is no child labor or forced labor or artisanal labor in their supply chains. And you and I are meant to just carry on with our consumer lifestyles and not worry about it. But the truth is the opposite. And the voices of the Congolese people, the ones that I bring to the world in Cobalt Red, will tell you the truth. They tell you the truth that they experience every day, artisanal cobalt, all of it, child labor cobalt, all of it flows into the formal supply chain. And by the time that cobalt leaves the Congo, it is impossible to disaggregate what was industrially mined and what was mined by a child. So you've done some wonderful expository work on this, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading your book on it. And I did see some of the video footage you were able to obtain yourself of just rows and rows and rows and rows of body working away in this in pit in what you know appears to be completely torrid conditions and i it made me wonder as well did you were you met with any resistance there were there anybody keeping an eye out because obviously it feels like a lot of a lot of this or as much as possible needs to be shielded away from recordings uh, and an expo uh, expository uh, investigation the big the big tech and ev companies uh don't want the secret coming out you know, it, it, they're in a scramble to sell us the gadgets, to sell us EVs and to uh, book their quarterly profits uh, and child labor and forced labor and environmental destruction by mining companies in the Congo runs counter to that narrative. Um, so as a consequence, it is very difficult to get into that area. It's heavily militarized, heavily secured. There are roving militias. It's very dangerous. And if you're seen poking around, trying to uncover the truth, uh, very grim things can happen. And I had more than one uh, very dangerous encounter, a couple where it could have just gone the wrong way and you and I wouldn't be speaking here because the secret is not meant to get out. The truth is not meant to get out. That suffering and degradation is meant to remain shrouded in darkness for as long as possible. So it, it is dangerous. And I had to rely very much on the trust and faith of ground teams um, to gain access to mining areas, to speak with artisanal miners in their communities. Uh, and it was very much a, a process of building trust and trying to be as careful as possible so as not to put anyone in danger. So did you actually go into this situation with the open 
persona of I am investigating, I'm a journalist, I am asking questions about this specific mining operation? The context, it depends on the context. So if I were meeting with a government official or interviewing a family um, of artisanal miners, I said who I was. Uh, I'm a researcher from the United States uh, uh, wanting to understand the conditions of cobalt mining. Um, when I went to speak to uh, the traders and buyers buying cobalt, or maybe uh, people uh, more closely tied to the mining supply chain. Um, then I was someone looking to get into the mineral trade. There are actually a lot of Indians, and I'm of Indian descent. A lot of Indians in the Congo, many have come as laborers, some have come as mineral traders. Uh, uh, so I was able to blend in more easily. So if I go up to, you know, the there are these entire marketplaces where artisanal cobalt is bought by intermediaries and then sold to uh, industrial mining companies. So if I were to go to this marketplace and start talking to these in intermediaries and say, well, I'm a researcher, conversation over. Not only that, I'd probably get pointed in the direction of uh, some army guy. Uh, so in that case, I was uh, a mineral trader looking to get, get into the business uh, in order to sort of start having conversations. Uh, but anything else, um, when I was talking with a family, a child, a mother, a father, who may have suffered injury or worse. Um, I, I was myself, uh, and because that's also a function of establishing trust and faith with people. Okay, so a lot of plate spinning there. Um, so, I mean, it seems obvious, but I, I need to ask the question anyway. I mean, a place like this is a recipe for disaster in terms of health, safety, uh, things like that. Were you, were you, did you hear any stories of serious injury or death? Every single day, every day, someone is suffering grievous injury or death for our cobalt. Um, artisanal miners work in exceptionally hazardous conditions. They dig by hand with pickaxes, shovels, stretches of rebar. Remember, it's all toxic, everything they're breathing. And the consequences of that will be born in the years to come. Uh, but people suffer shattered legs, shattered spines from pit wall collapses uh, or from tumbling down a pit wall and then their lives are over. You know, if that happens to the father of a family, the, it's the three kids that have to come and then replace that lost income and invariably they'll suffer the same injury. But the worst, the worst is the tunnel collapses. So um, there are about 15 or so thousand at least tunnels that have been dug by hand by artisanal miners. And the reason they dig tunnels is there are slightly higher grades of cobalt ore, 20, 30, 40 meters below the surface. If you dig at the surface, the ore you get, you might make a dollar or two for the day. 10 hours of backbreaking, grueling, hazardous work. You might get a dollar or two. The ore further down is a higher grade, so you earn a little more. You might get $5. So there's this drive to try to earn what to them is two or three times the income in a day. The tunnels are about a meter in diameter, they shimmy down. These are hand dug by teenage boys and men, it requires a lot of strength. And then they find, when they find a vein of cobalt, they follow it along, tunneling along the way. It's crouched underground, oftentimes 24 hours at a time. These tunnels collapse every week. And whoever's in there is buried alive. And that's the risk they take to try to get that $5. And they're feeding that cobalt up the chain. So I met mothers who had lost a son, uh, women who had lost a husband, fathers who had lost a son, 
to these tunnel collapses. It happens all the time. And there's just no accounting up the chain. These glitzy tech companies talking about the most horrid death you can imagine, being buried alive under a crush of rock and earth, that this is your final moment on earth, and that that's the suffering and degradation that's inside all these batteries. And they don't want that truth coming out, but that's the purpose of Cobalt Red and the purpose of these other uh, efforts to bring this truth to the world so that these companies will be held accountable for this human destruction at the bottom of their supply chains. Wow, yeah, so li the literally incentivizing risk to life. Um, I mean, I, I know you've been very clear to say this material, this cobalt is found in all forms of our technology. You're not, you're not singling out any particular uh, brand. H however, one that kind of sticks out a little bit is Tesla. Obviously, they are all about uh, electric batteries. That's integral to their business. And obviously, Elon Musk is someone who's very vocal about all things Tesla, including criticism. Uh, praise and i was just wondering he he must have heard you speak that you spoke on joe rogan he must be aware uh, of this issue has he said anything publicly about it to your to your mind not not to my knowledge um i mean what what can they say i mean what what you know it's silence that they need uh, it's it's keeping this all buried keeping this totality of human misery buried that's what they need that's what they're relying on so there's nothing to say other than we acknowledge what's happening okay well then what are we going to do about it so that they don't want to move in that direction as of yet my hope is that there'll be a public outcry there'll be a demand to account for this human misery at the bottom of these supply chains and and we mustn't forget it's not just the human destruction which is beyond measure but there's a massive destruction of the environment in the Congo. These mines, remember I told you the biggest one is about the size of London. They've clear cut millions of trees. These mining companies dump their toxic effluents into the water, into the air, into the dirt, all around the mining provinces. They, they behave in ways they never would in their home country. But it's okay to treat the Congo like a toxic dumping ground. So... This EV movement, this green energy movement, which is important, is being built on the uh, uh, as a, is causing the destruction of the environment in the Congo. And that's an utter hypocrisy. Why is it that we should preserve our environment at the expense of theirs? And then, of course, facilitate our daily lives by destroying their lives. And you and I have been made unwitting participants in this grotesquerie. We we don't. You know, you and I buy a smartphone. We have no intention of contributing to the death of children in the Congo. You and I buy an, I, an EV. We have no intention of contributing to the destruction of the environment in the Congo. And yet we're forced to because these companies have not seen fit to sort out their supply chains and ensure the dignity of the people in the Congo and, this, and, and the protection of their environment. I mean... Uh, I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is, but is this material so essential now that there is just no way to ethically obtain or source as a consumer uh, these electronic items? As of today, yes, I think that's true. Uh, any any company that makes the claim that their smartphone or tablet or or whatever, rechargeable gadget and car, that the cobalt in it is clean, 
is either dealing in falsehood or recklessly ignorant of the truth. Because remember, we said almost three-fourths of the world's supply of cobalt is coming from the Congo. So there's not enough other cobalt anywhere else to meet the demand, especially for the big tech and EV companies. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed, and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free from baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. <laughs> it doesn't get healthier than this because all those other snacks have refined sugars, colours, preservatives and additives. Koros snacks have none of that. Oh, I can't wait. So I'm going to go for the bio energy ball today. Ooh, Salted pistachio. A little uh, chocolate bar here, I think. Oh, the coconut chocolate bar. Mmm. Oh, that's good. Want to try it? Ooh. <laughs> so, what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro avoids using sulfur, refined sugars, preservatives, colours, and other additives. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. So it's all coming from the Congo and it's all mixed before it ever leaves the country. The child labor, the forced labor, the, uh, the hazardous labor, the death, the misery, the destruction, the environmental contamination. It's all blended together into one supply before it ever leaves the country. It's really, it's really quite striking how far and wide this is spread in the Congo, isn't it? I was just looking at some satellite images, I think via ABC News, and it's shown uh, an image of the Congo in 2017, I believe, then contrasted that with uh, 2022. And you could see how much this mining industry has completely reshaped uh, the landscape. I mean, it, it feels like they, in terms of an environmental perspective, there is not really much going back from that now. No, it's done. The destruction is done. It's like when you kill someone, they're not coming back. When you gouge out an entire countryside and clear-cut millions of trees to make place for behemoth pit mines, it, the damage is done. And I, there, there are some fascinating time-lapse images that I've, I've seen as well. Going back even a little further, before the cobalt crush, starting in like 2010-12. And then you compare them to today and you see the utter destruction of that part of the Congo. Cities like Lubumbashi, Likasi, Kolowezi, Fungurume, Kambov, everything in between. Um, you just trace this little arc along that region of the Congo and you just see across time mines getting bigger and bigger, environment being destroyed. What you can't see is, of course, the toxic pollution that these mining companies are doing in that part of the Congo. But the other consequence is there were people living there. You know, if you see the 2017 photo and then the 2022 photo, that big blob of brown that's grown, there were people who were living there. All those people are displaced. Now they can't survive. Their homes are gone. They have no place to live. Uh, and there's nothing else to do. So they have to scramble back into those mines to try to dig and earn that dollar or two a day. 
Where does the book start with you? Whose responsibility is this? Is it the big Western companies that are outsourcing this? Is it the people on the ground in the Congo that have the responsibility to protect the workers? Is it is it China? Where would you say the book starts? Demand for cobalt starts at the top of the chain, and that's where the solutions have to start. No, no one put a gun to the head of these tech companies and EV companies and said, you must use cobalt. They're using cobalt. They're they have inordinate, immense, insatiable demand for cobalt. And so everything that's happening down the chain as a consequence only exists because of the demand at the top. So yes, there are bad actors in the Congo. There are corrupt Chinese mining companies. There's corrupt governance locally. All of that is a consequence of the demand that start, has started at the top. And so that's where the solutions need to start. So those companies, they all, incidentally, they all say their supply chains are clean that they're 100% audited down to the mining level, that there's no child labor cobalt in their supply chains. None of that's true. So really what they simply need to do is maintain the commitments they're already proclaiming to the broader community, to the global community. Put teams on the ground. I never in all my trips to the Congo ever saw anyone who worked for any of these companies walking around to try and figure out where's our cobalt coming from? How do we fix this problem? None of them have ever sent teams there to understand their supply chains, to understand the truth of their supply chains. They just point the finger down the supply chain at the next company down. That company points its finger downstream. And you keep getting fingers pointing down until the last finger is pointed at a child caked in toxic filth up to their armpits in a pit scrounging out for cobalt. No one's accepting responsibility for that child. And so, of course, horrible things are happening. Yeah, that's a that's a very difficult image to digest, uh, for sure. Um, you, you said there that I mean these companies are choosing to use this material, which which makes me wonder: is there an alternative? Are they using this material because there is nothing else they can use? It's absolutely essential, or are they only using this material because they know that you can get it on the back of cheap labor? So cobalt is is used in rechargeable batteries because it allows those batteries to maintain uh, high energy density and thermal stability. So what does that mean? That means you don't have to plug in as much. The battery will hold more charge and it won't overheat and catch on fire. That's what cobalt does at the simplest level for a battery. And of course, that's what we want, don't we? We want our batteries to last as long as possible, especially our electric car batteries, because we don't have to plug in twice when we're driving around town. Uh, and we certainly don't want the battery to catch on fire. So that's what cobalt does. Now, there are absolutely uh, battery chemistries that are being developed and have been developed that don't use cobalt. You have to, you have to horse trade a little bit, like power density and, uh, uh, and stability, when you don't use cobalt. Uh, uh, but the writing is on the wall, and that's why alternate chemistries are being uh, develop because the scramble, the cobalt reserves that we have probably have another two decades left to run. And then, and then that's it. So there'll need to be alternatives, uh, to cobalt developed and there, and there will be, I'm sure, um, uh, good replacements, but let's say, let's say tomorrow there was a perfectly uh, equal replacement to the battery performance that did not require cobalt. And so every tech company and EV company stopped using cobalt tomorrow. That would do nothing to repair 
the destruction that's taken place the last 12 years. Those lives aren't coming back. The injuries aren't going to be healed. The environment is suddenly not going to be repaired. So even if it all stopped tomorrow, there is so much harm, so much violence that's been inflicted on the Congo that needs to be repaired. And that gets you back to the top of the chain where the demand started. I mean, so you've said the, the majority of cobalt comes from the Congo. That that's I'm not sure what percentage you said, but it makes me wonder where where are the other areas of the planet is coming from. And I, I imagine or at least hope that conditions there are at least a, a lot different. Yeah, so it's almost three fourths of the world's supply last year of uh, cobalt production was in the Congo. And then you have a handful of countries where it's like two percent, three percent, two percent. Uh, places like Australia, Canada, Morocco, Russia. Um, uh, so n no one else is even close to double digits in, mm -hmm. in terms of contribution. Uh, it's Congo and then a bunch of other little bits and pieces. Now, I'm sure I've not gone to the Australian cobalt mines to see what conditions are like. I'm sure they're perfectly fine. Uh, same with Canada and so on. But you have to bear in mind again that the cobalt that's coming from Australia could very well be refined in the same batch as the cobalt that's come from the Congo at the refinery in China. And so once again, you can't disaggregate hmm. what came from where. Yeah, that is a worry. And I think, I mean, you've done a lot, your expository work uh, has, has been highlighted and I'm not even sure I'd ever heard of the word cobalt until I saw your, your, you on Joe Rogan exposing this. And has any, have you had any, any sort of official response from any government entities, either in the Congo, in the West, anyone uh, official that, that works for any of these companies? <laughs> my, my phone lines are open. I mean, my email is open. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm not surprised that I haven't had uh, engagement uh, because, again, this this truth is what they don't want. They didn't want this truth to be revealed uh, because then it's a problem that has to be dealt with. And pause for a moment and and reflect on the fact that for some reason it was deemed OK to carry on treating the people of Central Africa in this way and to treat their environment in this way. Why is that? Why, why was it deemed okay all this time? No, they knew what was happening on the ground and yet didn't see fit that that needed to be addressed, that they needed to send even a team of five people to go and see what's happening and figure out how to stop it, how to improve it. Because they're not worth the same as you and I, is the answer. I mean, full stop. That's been the answer for centuries, right? Deep in the back of the capitalist mind, deep in the back of the tech industry king is the idea that they're not worth the same as us. And eventually, of course, there has to be a community of conscience. Uh, perhaps people listening today will be a part of a new movement, just as there have been movements in the past in Africa, in the heart of Africa, in that too, in Congo, to say this, this kind of tyranny and degradation of these people is not acceptable and we won't allow it to to persist in our civilization and so that movement will come as the voices of the congolese people reach out into the world any company to answer your question directly any company that wants to go see where their cobalt comes from i will take you there i will take you i will show you this is where your cobalt comes from now let's fix this problem 
I sincerely hope somebody takes you up on that, that offer for sure. Um, we've had a question in the chat. Ray J has asked, where does all the cobalt go after processing in China? Is it mostly to the West? I'm not sure if you know. So uh, about 80% of the world's supply of refined cobalt last year came from China. It then goes to battery manufacturers. And the, the big six are based in China, Japan, and South Korea. Um, uh, and they produced last year 86% of the world's lithium-ion rechargeable batteries. Uh, that's uh, for all the gadgets and, and EVs. The biggest one is a company called CATL, Contemporary Amperax Technology Limited. Uh, it's a Chinese company, and they produced one-third of the world's lithium-ion rechargeable batteries last year. Uh, the other companies are BYD, also in China, then uh, SK Technologies, LG Chem, Panasonic, um, uh, uh, producing the world's uh, batteries. Those batteries are then sold uh, uh, to tech and EV companies to put in the phones and cars. I wonder as well, I mean, is there some sort of cultural shift needed in the West in terms of how, and I don't throw this word around often, but privilege in terms of how many gadgets we have, what we enjoy as possessions, materials, things like that. So it, it strikes me as, a, I suppose you could draw a comparison with factory farming and our love of meat consumption. I think, you know, to have meat as often as we want and in the quantities we want, that's going to lead to animal rights violations. And I think if we want all these materials for our gadgets in the in the way we do, that can only be achieved through someone somewhere, unfortunately, uh, suffering exploitation. I think as consumers, you know, we can't solve the problem, you know, of what's happening at the bottom of cobalt supply chains, but we can think long and hard about our consumption habits. Um, do we need the latest phone every year? Uh, do we need the newest gadget uh, uh, every time a new model comes out? Uh, I think we've also been marketed this compulsion to consume, to keep getting the latest everything. Oh, the camera's a little better this year. And it's, you know what? Oh, I have to have that. Um, so, it, you know, it's not just that we're sitting back consuming for no good reason. There's massive marketing campaigns associated with making us want to buy the latest gadget. And so then that just escalates demand. And what does that mean in terms of cobalt? It means more kids, more suffering, more destruction to feed that cobalt up the chain. And I think when it comes to electric vehicles, I think it's very important to pursue climate sustainability goals, no question, but it cannot come at the expense of the people and environment of the Congo. Uh, in the chat, Jake Ford has said, uh, an alternative to cobalt must have been researched. What has been suggested? Yeah, so there are a couple, uh, as we discussed, there's a, there are alternate battery chemistries being produced. Um, the In terms of uh, consumer electronics, Nothing really. All the smartphones and tablets, laptops have cobalt in the batteries. Some EV models on the market now do not have cobalt. Uh, the main alternate battery that's being used, and I think Tesla uses it primarily in um, some of their models made in China, is lithium iron phosphate. Uh, so that's a cobalt-free battery. Uh, but lithium mining is another entire, it doesn't necessarily mean it's clean. Lithium mining is replete with human rights and environmental abuses as well. But as we said, even if cobalt was not used in anything as of tomorrow, that does nothing to repair the immense human rights uh, abuses and environmental destruction that's taken place for the last 12 years, feeding cobalt up the chain. 
I mean, it's remarkable, really, that this is all playing out in the landscape of an African country, given the history and given how, how you would imagine the West would be far more sensitive to exploitation and forms. I mean, this is almost like a form of sort of corporate imperialism in a way. I mean, it, 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 there's something slightly more sinister about all this when you put it into that context, isn't there? That's right. You'd, you'd think uh, we wouldn't be in an era where the people and resources of Africa are still being pillaged as if it's colonial times. And yet instead of nation states, it's now corporate supply chains. It's just more refined, a little more snazzy, a little more shiny and adorned with proclamations of adherence to human rights norms and global international principles of zero tolerance policies on child labor and all this puffery that's just that. It's nothing more than hot air because it doesn't translate into anything meaningful on the ground. In the Congo, the Congo, I don't think there's been a patch of earth that's been more severely exploited than the Congo. I mean, your, your listeners, you've all in college read Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. And that was inspired by the first Congo pillage under King Leopold. And what's extraordinary is it related to automobiles. So King Leopold got his hands on the Congo in 1885, the same year that Carl Benz invented a car with an internal combustion engine. Three years later, a chap named Dunlop invented a rubber tire. And now those cars could really start driving and the scramble was on. And it just so happened that Leopold's Congo had one of the largest rubber tree rainforests in the world. He terrorized, enslaved, tortured, mutilated, and murdered the Congolese people to feed rubber up the chain for the first car revolution. And now, more than a century later, we're having a new automobile revolution, electric vehicles. Guess who has more of the valuable resource than anyone else? That's Congo again. Well, instead of a Belgian king, now it's big tech companies and EV companies, but it's the same racket. It's the same racket, just a different century. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderful that you've managed to shine a light on this and bring it into the public consciousness as well. But we're always incredibly well aware of the human rights violations that occurred in china for instance that supply our clothing our plastics anything and it feels like maybe we've reached the point of no return with china that we're so reliable on their their cheap labor uh, to function that there is there is practically nothing we can do to convince them to uh, behave in a way that's more conducive to human rights have we reached the point of no return here I don't think so. I think we've reached a point of decision making, uh, of critical decision making. And you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I have seen it on the ground. They have no Chinese mining companies in the Congo. There is nothing by way of concern for human rights or environmental protection. It's just a mad scramble to get the resource out of the ground and out of the country and up the chain into batteries. Full stop. I mean, the people of the Congo are either in the way or fit to be slaves as far as this industry is concerned. Uh, it's all about the loot, which in this case is cobalt. So we have a decision to make in the West. You know, do we participate in that kind of economy, in that kind of moral statement? Or, or do we now start to make decisions around uh, what kind of world we want to promote and live in and 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 establish alternate supply chains, decent and dignified supply chains. The problem is, as you rightfully note, it's all wound up in China now. And so it's not that easy to disentangle. I think COVID has started some of that process about disintermediating China from some of these supply chains because the world realized, wait, if China shuts down, we're stuck. Uh, and so you saw, for instance, Apple has recently moved a lot of its iPhone production 
out of China and into India for that reason. Uh, I think it's more logistics than human rights, but uh, that migration is important. And I, I, we simply have to make a statement uh, as a culture, as, as the West, uh, do we continue supporting and doing business with a state that has such, to put it charitably, radically different norms of human rights uh, uh, than we do? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing more I'd love than to, you know, like you say, disentangle from China and make a, an ethical and moral uh, objection to the way they behave. But it is, is it? Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK Amazon, US Amazon company account, US Amazon, UK Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Cancel unnecessary subscriptions with Rocket Money today. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. Is it really a case of that we need them more than they need us now and they can basically do whatever they want and we're, we're powerless, not just from a supply and demand standpoint, but even militarily, if you were to take it to the extreme, it just feels, I appreciate and being very pessimistic here, that there is not an awful lot we can do. Well, it, it would cause, it would, there would be a period of pain for yeah. sure. <laughs> There's no, no way around that. And the, the, the uh, severity of that pain you know, it could be quite, quite severe. I mean, they own so much of Western debt. Uh, they're at the bottom of so many supply chains, manufacturing tech and so on. Uh, and I think that's why there's this sort of delicate dance that's played between China and the West that, you know, they push, we push, they push, they float a balloon, we shoot it down. <laughs> you know, this, there's this back and forth that's going on. But, you know, they need us to consume all their stuff that they're manufacturing. We need them to make it for cheap. And so there's this kind of unholy tryst that exists right now. I, I appreciate that it won't come easy, but I think at a certain point, courageous leaders need to take a stand because where are we headed otherwise? Yeah. Uh, Fred's asked in the chat, why can't conditions be improved? In the Congo? I assume so, yeah. Yeah, they can be. The question is, why haven't they been? Uh, they can be, absolutely, tomorrow, if the companies at the top of the chain decided that it was a priority. Let me tell you, 80% of the harm that's caused on a daily basis could be eliminated very easily. A lot of families have to bring children to work instead of keeping them in school because they're only earning that dollar or two a day for 10 hours of grueling labor. And that's barely enough to survive. It's the difference between eating or not. So they need children to come also earn that dollar or two for the family to survive. If these individuals were paid a basic, fixed daily wage of, say, $10, $15 a day, okay, a day, that's enough for a family 
to survive, for kids to stay in school, to have clothes, books, and so on. Would that difference in money, two versus 10, bankrupt Apple or Tesla or these companies? Of course not. They wouldn't even notice it. No one in the chain would notice it. Cobalt's toxic, right? We talked about that. All each person needs is some basic PPE. Yeah, you wouldn't Gloves. be a lot to ask. It's not that expensive. It's a one-time expense. It's not that much to ask. And yet the, the titans at the top of the chain don't feel the Congolese people are worth some masks and gloves and boots uh, just to prevent toxic exposure each day. A lot of harm would be eliminated with just some basic, basic changes that wouldn't even cost that much money. I suppose what's incredibly frustrating for the, the consumer listening to this, and I think Imogen in the chats just kind of summarized this in her question. She said, uh, as a vegan, she doesn't buy animal products because she doesn't believe they're ethical. Uh, so she tries to be consistent. And a question is, so what can we do? Is cobalt in anything electric or is it just primarily as batteries only, I assume, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's in the batteries. And right now, as a consumer, it's very difficult to avoid blood cobalt from the Congo. Full stop. You buy a smartphone, it's probably got blood cobalt from the Congo. I mean, even anything rechargeable, an e-scooter, an e-bike, anything that you plug in probably has cobalt in the battery because they're all lithium ion variants uh, and chemistries right now. Um, so it shouldn't be up to the consumer, though, to solve this problem. It's up to the company. So what we need to do is, well, maybe we don't upgrade every year. Maybe we just sit back and start a movement, start pressuring companies and policymakers to sort this issue out. I mean, I just, it's, it's appalling and utterly inexplicable that the people of the Congo, some of the poorest people in the world can be treated this way day in and day out uh, without it being addressed. I mean, just to keep, just to refocus back on the human element there and the conditions. I mean, you said that there are children there as well and they're, they're thousands and thousands of people working in these mines. Would you ever find women working there as well? Yes, absolutely. Women, girls, women with babies on their backs, teenage girls with babies on their backs. They're all in these pits, in these tunnels, in these trenches, digging, scrounging, scraping. Um, you know, I've, sh I've shared quite a few photos on my Twitter stream at Siddharth Kara. People want to see visually what, what, what some of the conditions look like to see the children, see women, see girls and babies um, in these toxic pits, digging for cobalt every day. Uh, and then, of course, you know, in the book, I share the voices of those people and how they tell their truth to the world that can't see them, doesn't even think they exist. So there's absolutely children, children as young as six. Now, the kinds of work they do will vary by age. You know, a six-year-old can't be a part of tunnel digging because it requires too much strength. So that's teenage boys and grown men. But there's a rinsing and sieving process that young children do to separate dirt from the cobalt stone, usually in toxic pools of water. I mean, putrid, toxic pools of water. They'll take a sieve to separate cobalt pebbles from the dirt and load those pebbles into the sack. They spend all day doing that, and that sack gets sold for a dollar or maybe two dollars. And they're up to their knees or up to their waist in completely toxic water. Now, another thing you need to know is that cobalt, it never appears by itself in nature. It's usually bound to copper and nickel in a, in a stone, in an ore body. And in the Congo, that ore body often contains trace amounts of radioactive uranium. So people are actually suffering low-grade radiation exposure. I had some women 
who were doing rinsing at a lake. Um, uh, and this lake, it was so toxic and putrid. And they said the mosquitoes won't even bite, bite us anymore because they know they're, they're just filled with uh, exposure to such heavy toxicity. Uh, it's just the whole horror show that's happening there is unimaginable. Yeah, horror shows, right. And I suppose that there's a blend there of obviously exploitation, slavery, um, child exploitation. There's a, there's a women's rights issue there, obviously. So I suppose my question is, where, where are the big human rights organizations? Where, where, I mean, I'm talking like the UN, Amnesty International, people like that. Are, are they banging the drum in any noticeable way that you're aware of? You know, Amnesty Amnesty has been down in the Congo. They issued a report back in 2016 uh, that was one of the first NGO reports about how deplorable the conditions are. Uh, there are not many big NGOs operating in the Congo. The primary reason is because of the, uh, the risk factor. It's mm. very violent there. You know, it's very dangerous to have staff down there operating uh, uh, consistently uh, in that part, of, especially in the mining provinces, because they're heavily militarized. And you just can't go walking around and poking around there without getting uh, very negative attention. So there are not too, too many big NGOs operating there, not too many big aid agencies operating there. Um, and honestly, this is the first book. The Cobalt Red is the first book that's ever brought this story to the world because it's so difficult getting this truth and because it's been shrouded and kept secret uh, for all these years. And my hope is that as people read the book, hear the voices, understand the truth and the realities that this will stimulate and catalyze more efforts to get there, to find truth, to bring it to the world, and to then uh, uh, push a movement forward that will address these injustices. With with your research and you, you speaking to the families and, and getting time with the workers, what, what are the typical shift patterns there? How what can they ex how long can they expect to work in a, in a single day if they they well I, I wanted to say opt in for this, but it, it seems like it's it's that's the wrong term. No, there's no opt in. There's nothing else to do. I yeah. mean, you you very rightly pointed out that ABC story that came out today showing some time lapse images, um, and I had one in. Um, uh, the Guardian a few years ago, also showing time-lapse images. As the mines just double in size, who do you think was living on that land? The people. And where are they living now? Nowhere. There, there's nothing, no place to go. There's nothing else to do. Mining has taken over. And so all they can do is try to scramble, try to get that dollar or two a day and, and undertake immense risk, immense hazard. Uh, in order to do so. So what's a day like? Many people work in family units, uh, uh, people they trust. And so people will be up by before dawn. Uh, they may have to walk quite a distance uh, to get to a, a mining area, to an industrial mine or a large artisanal mining area. And then they dig and a family will subdivide the task. So the stronger males, adult males, and maybe teenage boys We'll be digging a trench, maybe five, 15 uh, meters deep, uh, gathering with shovels, the ore filling that sh uh, 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 material into a sack. And younger children or mothers will drag that sack over to that toxic rinsing pool I told you about because it's all mud and stone. Okay. So then they'll stand, you know, up to their waist in this coppery, putrid, toxic sludge of water and sieve up and down, 
the dirt from the stone. And then there'll just be stones left in the sieve and they load that in a sack. And you have to go through a few cycles of that to get one full sack of just cobalt stone. And that will take the better part of a day for a family to fill maybe two sacks, three sacks. And then they take it to the traders who will pay them a couple of dollars each for that full sack. So maybe they're making as a family six, seven, eight dollars in a day uh, for the family unit of, say, five people. And then that trader sells it to the industrial mine. They'll never admit it, that they're buying it, the industrial mining, but they're all buying it. Where's the cobalt going otherwise? You see, every company at the top of the chain will say, there's no artisanal cobalt in my supply chain. Well, if that's true of all of them, then where is the production of these hundreds of thousands of Congolese people going? They're not digging it for fun. It's not going to Mars. It all goes into the formal supply chain because demand is so far outstripping supply. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's incredibly worrying, especially with reference to those satellite pictures, when you see how much it's ravaged. The land, obviously, it's, it's, it's destroyed houses and homes. And, and um, obviously, it's a finite resource. And, uh, you know, the humanitarian aspect aside and the, the environmental impact aside, could this lead to some sort of huge migration crisis, a knock-on effect to neighboring countries because the, the entire economy and land has been completely ravaged by this cobalt mining? You know, I write in Cobalt Red, one of the first meetings I had on my first trip was with some university students in a town called Lubumbashi. And one of them said something to me that really, it, it stuck stuck with me. So I, I wrote about it and it stuck, stuck with me to this day. She said, listen, everyone's talking about the human rights catastrophe happening now and the environmental destruction happening now, which is important. What's no, what no one's talking about, she said, is the fact that in 20 or 30 years, all this all these minerals will be gone at the, at the rate the mining companies, at the rate the demand is pulling them out of the ground. It's all going to be gone. And she said, in that time, Congo, Congo's population will probably double two generations down. Uh, so you'll have 100 to 200 million people in the Congo with nothing but valueless dirt under their feet. And then what happens was her point. And I thought, you're right. That's a disaster. To your point, this is this is a humanitarian disaster now, and it's a slow train wreck of an even bigger humanitarian disaster coming. So while all these companies at the top of the chain are are banking money, boosting profits every quarter, paying themselves big bonuses and selling us all this stuff along the way, it's at the cost of completely depleting and destroying an entire population of people who will ultimately, at the end of this, be left with absolutely nothing to show for it but dirt and suffering and poverty and starvation. And what happens then, we can only imagine the scale of how bad it's going to be for the people living there. Yeah, it's not, it's not, um, yeah, I'm not optimistic about that at all. And I, I suppose in, in a way, that, like you mentioned there about all these profits and the, the, the money-making, you know, capitalist scheme, um, it, there must be a lot of people very annoyed about you poking at this and, and highlighting it. And I think uh, Ray J summed it up well in the chat. His question is, have your views and book been suppressed in any way noticeable? Well, the book came out uh, eight days ago. So, um, so far I haven't noticed anything. Um, there has been a lot of interest in the book, which is good. It's, it means a lot to me on behalf of the people of the Congo. Um, uh, 
every time I interviewed a family, you know, a mother who had lost a child, uh, a father who had lost a son, uh, every time I interviewed people, I started by making them a promise, which is I'm here. I want to bring, I will do everything I can to bring your voice to the world. People rely on your misery every day and they don't know you exist. And the people in the Congo are crying out into an abyss. No one's hearing them. So for me, Cobalt Red was uh, a, pl a pledge fulfilled that I will do everything in my power to bring their voices to the world. It's not for me to speak for them. It's not for me to tell the world what needs to happen and what needs to be done or even what's happening now. The Congolese people can speak for themselves. And so um, the interest in the book, the fact that you and I are having this conversation that you invited me on and that others have invited me to talk uh, means that the world is learning the truth. The Congolese voices are being heard. And the more that happens, I think it's inevitable. There'll be no way to shut this down anymore. People will learn and be moved and motivated and stirred in their hearts to do something about it. Yeah, I mean, you can sense the empathy you have, and every time we talk about the the human aspect of it, aspects of it, rather, we, you can hear the the emotion in your voice. This obviously means a great deal to you. These people mean a great deal to you, and I, I just wondered, did that make it especially difficult for you to exist in that world for a time and, and speak to them and, and hear what they had to say? Yeah, it's uh, you know, Stephen, it's 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 really hard. The the pain that I saw, like the 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 quantum of human misery, the torment, the suffering, uh, the, the number of mothers who just were pounding their chests in grief because their 12-year-old son had been buried alive. Um, you know, fathers who told me what it was like to hold their dead child's body in their arms, uh, praying that, please open your eyes. It just it, the, the amount of pain that's happening now in the Congo is just it's unimaginable, and it's it's hard encountering it. It's but it's infinitely harder experiencing it, and that's what's happening to the people who live there. I mean, they have been subjected to generation after generation of misery simply because they were born into a place that is blessed with resources that the world wants. Rubber, ivory, gold, diamonds, silver, nickel, and cobalt. What What was the most shocking thing you you either witnessed while you were there, or was relayed to by somebody who had seen it? Yeah, so I write. I mean, cobalt red is is written as a journey, and so the answer to your question is the end of that journey. Um, uh, I take I take the reader. There's only one road that goes through the mining provinces. Uh, built by China uh, because it made it easier to schlep minerals up and down. Um, uh, so we follow that road deeper and deeper, deeper towards the truth. And there's a moment and an event and something that happened that was that to this day is the most extraordinarily painful thing I ever saw. Uh, but it revealed the truth, the ultimate deepest truth of what's happening there. And so I'll, I'll ask your, your listeners to pick up the book and read it. Uh, and go on that journey uh, because it ends at a place and a moment and an and, and event that uh, in a way that was so magnificent and terrible at the same time that it was it's just so clear that that a centuries old truth had been revealed 
uh, up to and including that moment and today, uh, that, that the, the greatest truth, the most enormous truth about the Congo and Africa was revealed in that moment. And that was also the most painful experience I had uh, in the Congo. But there were others, you know, it always it was always talking to mothers who lost a child. It's, uh, you know, you can't, you can't, uh, if people on listening, if you have children, you know, and, and of course there's, or mothers, especially, you know, you bring this life into the world, all your hopes and dreams, you know, everything, everything you put into that child. And, you know, when it's snatched for greed and profit, um, it, the pain people go through is utterly devastating. And I mean, you mentioned here that, you know, China paved the road and these obviously, you know, the reasons for that are obvious. Uh, is that the only thing China offer in terms of like ridiculously low income or do they make promises of development uh, thrown in with this as well? Yeah, they were supposed to. You know, the, when I said some time ago, China cornered the global cobalt market before everyone, anyone else knew what happened. It was this deal they struck with the Congolese government in 2009. So right at the dawn of the gadget revolution and at the dawn of the ev transition china saw what was coming and they knew the world would need cobalt they identified where all the cobalt was and they struck a deal uh and that deal was we'll give uh six billion dollars in aid uh and loans we'll build schools and universities and hospitals and will pave 2000 kilometers worth of road in exchange for those three mines. And once that deal was struck, Chinese companies got the next mine, the next, it opened the door, right? And so now China has 15 of the 19 big copper cobalt mines in the Congo. Um, but they never really fulfilled their pledges. They built the one road that they needed hmm. to get to get minerals out of the country. Everything else has been behind schedule, languishing. You know, I write about this in Cobalt Red also. What's fascinating is even the little bits and pieces of work that they're doing that are 10 years behind schedule, they won't even hire locally. They actually import Chinese laborers into Congo to do the work and then schlep them back rather than hire the Congolese people who are desperate for a job, wow. desperate for income. And so that's another whole layer of the injustice that's taking place. Yeah, that's another an hour conversation, surely. But Siddhartha, despite the incredibly serious and quite harrowing topic, I've, I've really enjoyed speaking to you. I'm, I'm very grateful for the work you're doing, uh, shining a light on this, banging the drum. Uh, I'll be picking up your book for sure. Um, would you uh, be able to point people to where they can find your book and, and find more of your work if they, if they are so inclined? Absolutely, Stephen. And thank you again for your very gracious invitation to join you. Um, yeah, you can get my book anywhere, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, any online bookseller. It should be in bookstores as well. And I'm on Twitter um, at Siddharth Kara. And I, I joined Instagram a couple of weeks ago. So I think it's it's Siddharth.Kara or something like that. You, you'll find me. That's wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it a lot. Thank you so much. Lovely to speak to you.
Chet Sandu's book is finally available worldwide on Amazon. He's one of our most viral podcast guests ever. The book is called Self-Made, Juice Paid, an Asian kid who became an international drug smuggling gangster. Do you want to read some of the back, Jen? Oh, yeah, go the blurb. In 1999, Chet Sandu was arrested at gunpoint in Alicante Airport for smuggling the largest quantity of illicit pharmaceutical drugs in Spanish history. Interesting. Overnight, he went from living in the shadows of the Costa del Crimes underworld to being labelled a notorious supervillain in the international press. Incarcerated alongside murderers, rapists, and terrorists in a super maximum security wing. He had to navigate a world of murderous knife fights, prison breaks, drug taking, and high stake power plays. Good bedtime read. In self-made Jews paid learn how a British born Asian kid with disabilities raised in a corner shop emerged as a protector of his family from racist thieves and hooligans. Be prepared to be entertained, informed and offended by Chet's no-holes-barred account of raves, drugs, bodybuilding, entering the fashion industry. Did you know that he dated Kylie Minogue and Naomi yes. Campbell? <laughs> Latest interview. Working the doors and life in one of the world's deadliest places to be incarcerated. If you enjoyed Chet's podcast series with us, there's a lot more detail in the book. Check it out. Worldwide on Amazon, ebook, paperback, and audiobook.